back to self-care with Dr. Sarah. We're back from a little bit of a hiatus due to the fact that I, Sarah B. Um, was such a badass was getting all these faculty interviews. Extremely, <laughs> was extremely distracted um, from anything resembling my normal life because of being on the job market. So when I came back from this whirlwind, whirlwind uh, tour, job tour 2K16, I asked Sarah whether we could have a podcast uh, on the on with a quickness because I still have a lot of thoughts about it and a lot of feelings about it. So I think that would be maybe helpful for me to talk through and hopefully helpful to some of our listeners um, who are dealing themselves with with academic interviews or thinking in the future that they might want to. Mm-hmm. So Sarah and I were talking beforehand about the things that might be helpful to discuss, and maybe we can just open um, with with our you know, comparing sort of our experiences. So Sarah at least has had one faculty interview already. Yes, yes. Uh, Last year at University of Houston, and I felt really unprepared because it was straight out of grad school Mm -hmm. and lots of imposter and lots of imposter thoughts with that. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And I've had a smallish handful now. So this is not my first rodeo. But you know, it's not. uh, I'm not I don't feel like an expert by any means either. So I feel like my understanding of the best way for me to navigate it is still being shaped in real time. Uh, Mm -hmm. So this year I interviewed at three places and all three places were super different just in terms of the style of the interview. And so they kind of required different things from me. But if I had to find the words to describe what it felt like, it, it helped in therapy to really solidify this image in my mind of what it felt like. But I felt like uh, I had a projector that was turned on at all times and it was projecting the hologram of Professor Ballard. (laughs) <laughs> and and so people would interact with the hologram, um, which is kind of larger than life. And she does and says all the right things. Uh, the hologram does. But the real person is me working the projector, and I have to just constantly keep cranking it so that, yeah. <laughs> so that it keeps up. Um, so it felt like there's a degree of unreality to it, for one thing. And there's also a degree of just emotional and mental exhaustion. At the end of the day, um, yeah. that hologram imagery made me think of you, Sarah, because Sarah's dad uh, was a real expert in holograms. Yeah. Um, speaking of faculty, speaking of physics faculty. <laughs> exactly. He, he did it. We can do it, too, I guess. <laughs> Though arguably the process was so much easier when my dad was becoming a faculty. You could go straight out of grad school and just it's get a so job. It's so hard now. And then you had to publish, like, just a few papers and you got tenure. It was it was a different landscape so uh, back in the... 60s? Yeah, and there's something that there's something that you know is implicit in this conversation, which maybe it would be helpful to make it explicit. Which is, it's so hard to even make it to a short list. So I feel really yeah. warring things within myself. Which is, firstly, I feel full of of gratitude and excitement um, at the fact that I even made it to this stage, uh, and and shortlists at really good places yeah, good too. Places. I mean, you had some excellent. Excellent Good places. Uh, options. So, and it is hard out there being considered. Um, it's hard out there to get a job in academia. So, at the same time as I was feeling excitement and pride um, at being on shortlist, I also was feeling a really intense sense of overwhelm. My mm-hmm. self care related to interviews. I really tried to have that reflect the stuff that was coming up in real time. So, for one thing, um, the imposter thoughts were very strong. What were some of the thoughts you had yeah. on your on your visit? 
Well, I think I told you, I, I read them right before here. I'll, I'll read the exact quote in my journal of my imposter thought. Oh, yeah, I said, I said that I, my imposter thought, I better take this job because I won't ever get another offer. Because I don't, <laughs> because I know I don't plan on killing myself during my postdoc years. This right, is the right. high point in my oh, career. That's a nice measure. And, and therefore, and therefore, it, it's now or nothing. That was, that's... <laughs> That's my imp- I so still think nice that's true, man. <laughs> you know, nice I still think it's I mean, true. <laughs> I felt at the end of every interview that there was no way that I ever could do this job that I was interviewing for. That feeling would be extremely strong at the end of the second day, which uh, if you're mm. uh, a novice in the, in the interview process on the faculty level, they're often just two days long. We're not talking about, you know, a single hour. They're individual meetings with, um, with other... Uh, faculty who might potentially be your colleagues, and there's often a meeting with the selection committee, meetings with the graduate students, and then you have your meals uh, with people. So there's, uh, it's rare to have downtime. Mm-hmm. So one of the main things that I did uh, in terms of self-care on these interviews, which is that I treated my downtime very seriously. For one thing, I mm-hmm. made sure before every interview that I traveled with a face mask, actually. So, <laughs> like a fancy one for my skin. Um, and so the night before, and often just every night I was there, I would do a really fancy face mask for myself. And um, and part of that was because I feel so much stuff while I'm interviewing, but I feel really disconnected from my physical self. I feel like I'm completely 100% in my head. So it uh-huh. feels extra good for me to do things that are really gentle to my physical self, like giving myself a nice face mask. I do some yoga. Uh-huh. Often on the second day, well, I should say at the end of the first day, I'll take a really hot bath and I'll watch TV in the, in the bath. So that's just like these are things that I just started uh-huh. doing without even really thinking how am I going to spend my time the night before or the night after. I was like, I'm going to do this face uh-huh. mask. I'm going to do some yoga. I'm going to play my guitar. Then the next night, as soon as I get back to the hotel, I'm running a hot bath for myself. Uh-huh. I'm going to watch this TV show that I really like. So, uh-huh. yeah. Did you? I did, interestingly, I did the exact same thing. I, I took a bath and I would put my, because you're in a hotel room, right, invariably. So it's like hard yes, to watch TV like, yeah, 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 from yeah, the yeah, bathtub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would just bring my computer in and set it on like, Set it on the the yeah. bathtub yes. or the you know the toilet seat yeah, yeah, or whatever yeah. you know or a chair that I would bring yes. in or something and like stream something from Netflix. The other thing, the other thing that I would do is I uh, would bring Epsom salts with me uh, to t- to like take the bath so that I would have like a muscle relaxing soaking awesomeness. Um, and I mean, in all my experience, in my one faculty experience, this is what I did. <laughs> and then I also, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. then I also, uh, went to the gym, uh, I f- like at the uni, which was great because I could also see the facilities that they offer for working out and get a little bit of a cardiovascular workout in, um, after, after the day one. I'll note, I want to note real quickly though, that, uh, uh, interviews in other countries are very different. So the U.S. Oh. it's this two day thing, but now that yeah, I'm living yeah, in yeah. the U.K., it's it's a completely different process. Um, in the U.S., as you mentioned, they're normally two days. You're normally by yourself, and they're they're interviewing, say, typically a short list of six or so candidates. Those U.S. Six, and Canada, U.S. and Canada, U.S. and Canada, they come in, you know, for those two days, and they're the only one there, and and so the whole interview process takes several months, and then afterward, yeah. there's still like maybe a you know, a month of them sorting out who they're going to make the offers to. And so the whole thing takes a really long time. 
Whereas in the UK, uh, it's like a one day thing for everyone all at once. And so like you a know, Hunger the, Games. It is, it's a Hunger Games <laughs> of, of faculty interviews. So you you have like five or six candidates coming all on the same day. They typically come in the night before and have dinner. Then uh, that morning, they'll give a talk, you know, uh, to the department, kind of back to back. And they can't be, or at least in our department, they weren't in the same room wow. uh, as the other talk. So they had to leave. So they okay. were kind of like called in. Okay. Jeez. Uh, and How long is each talk like this? Not long, like 25 minutes. You know, basically it was like 20 minutes on your research, five minutes on like how you would fit in with the department and like five minutes of questions or something like that. Wow. Um, that sounds so tough. So like a half an hour roughly, I think, if you know, roughly. And, and they just stacked them up back to back and then they had lunch with each of the candidates. And then in the afternoon, there was an interview panel that met individually with each of the candidates. Again, kind of just boom, 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 back to back, uh, where they asked more detailed questions, particularly in our case, they were asking how they were going to use the facilities and other stuff, you know, because uh, uh, it was more an experimental call uh, to use previous facilities. But, you know, I'm sure it could, you know, they'll the, it, basically the interview committee takes it from there. Then... They have the dinner again, I guess, and that's it. Wow. And and often they decide like the next day or two, you know, at the you know, Holy at the faculty. Cow. So it's it's really fast. So like within a week, maybe, you're the the first person on the list has already gotten the offer. Jeez. You know, within probably three or four days, you know, at least this is typical. I you know, I, I was very surprised because when the whole interview day was done, I asked my office mate, I said, Well, when are they gonna decide and they're like oh probably tomorrow and I was like what because <laughs> you know, it's just Holy not, the way, it, it's not yeah. the way it's done in the U.S. and Canada yeah. and maybe it's done differently in in other countries too like this is the UK but uh yeah and then they made I think it took them actually more than a day they like the next week they made an offer and you know and then and then they yeah go through hmm. go through their list of candidates but I, I found that very interesting you know actually it was an entirely different process in some ways it's yeah. I don't know. I mean, it, it's just completely different from from the U.S. one. I guess I was feeling uh, in these particular interviews um, how how especially exhausting it was to have to interact with so many people because in terms of uh, other scientists that we interact with, there's going to be a wide range in terms of people who are more kind of uh, socially aware of the challenges which are facing different people on the job market as a function of gender and other things. Um, and they're going to come at that situation with an awareness of that. And in some ways, it's nice to have a person acknowledge that. Other times, it's not. One of the most tricky parts of the interview, interviewing, I would say, was just the little paper cuts that you would get from from people with who are giving... Who are, who are holding this interview with you in a way that's just fraught with microaggression. So, and you're supposed to be focusing on the interview and you're like, ow, you know, what was that? Um, and that, <laughs> that's something which is very challenging. It's, uh, and of course, I've never visited a place where every single uh, individual associated with a department has practiced how to interact with other scientists in a way that is not harmful to them and yeah. that's such a basic thing when you when I put it like that maybe it sounds really basic but 
the truth is if you're going to be interacting with 20 scientists or something, um, there's going to be one or two, and even in the best departments, the quote-unquote best departments, yeah. who are going to make little remarks which are deeply bothersome. And you have to just kind of keep walking with that. It almost feels like mm-hmm. it feels like the Hunger Games because because <laughs> you're like, oh, God, I got an arrow in the thigh. Like, I have to keep fighting. <laughs> Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. and that was very frustrating. So, uh, and especially because as the interviewee, you're in a position of seemingly very limited power. So even though mm-hmm. the ostensible situation is that this department is interested in you, the truth is that you have to comport yourself in a way which is basically without flaw, you know, um, mm-hmm. Because of course you're your hologram, be, Sarah. Yeah, you have to you have to comport yourself in this way that's without without flaw, which means that I had to respond uh, in situations where I felt really uh, uncomfortable, just calmly um, and professionally, even when I felt like a question was was harmful or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, and that really takes a toll. I could feel that this mask that I was wearing. Uh, you know, or the image of the hologram or whatever, I was feeling, I was chafing underneath it. Like the real Sarah is underneath there making facial expressions like in response to things, you know, facial expressions of surprise or dismay or sometimes like joy and excitement. But none of that was actually coming out on my physical face. And Mm -hmm. I could feel um, excitement or maybe anxiety or distress, but I wasn't registering any of that outwardly and I was doing that on purpose so that I could be the best interviewee that I could be you know so uh, trying to make myself kind of invulnerable I suppose to criticism you know I'm not going to go into a department and and have some senior male faculty members in that department say like oh this person really lost her cool you know or whatever Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not going to make myself available for those kind of criticisms but what that means is that I have to just be calm, cool, and collected the whole day. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of not only calm, cool, and collected. It was having to simultaneously project all of these qualities that different people perceive to be valuable in a faculty member. Mm-hmm. So in some meanings, it was leadership. In other meanings, it's um, you know competence, just an extreme facility with, with physics. Um, in other meanings, it would be your innovation or creativity, other times it was, what are your mentoring skills? Okay, so these are all different things I'm trying to project. And the end result was that something happened, which is extremely unusual for me personally, which is that after the fact, I had almost no idea how the interviews went. Like I'm making the air quote. Hmm. So I would leave and the interview, it would be finished. And my family or mentors would ask me, well, how did it go at such and such a place? And, and I was really at a loss for that. And that's because, um, I think, uh, I am on the more generous end of the spectrum, like in terms of, uh, ability to interpret like social cues, like verbal and nonverbal cues. But, but even with those skills that I do have in hand, there are situations that really outstrip my abilities. And these were some of them. I was working so hard on behaving a particular way that I did not have the emotional wherewithal to be taking in the things I'm usually taking in, such as, is this person making this kind of eye contact with me? What is their body language like? I mean, so the result was I would like, I would leave and people would say, do you think it went well? And I was like, I don't know, you know, which Mm -hmm. I'm realizing how 
um, frustrating that must be, generally speaking, for folks who have more difficulty interpreting social cues, because you leave an interaction and you're like, how did that go? <laughs> um, and that was very frustrating for me. That was very new. Uh, and that's a sign of how taxing that was, um, emotionally and mentally, because uh, I was left with a real dearth of information. I thought about how the interview actually went. And moreover, I'm also usually on the quicker side when it comes to processing my feelings about things. And I'm finding that it's taken me a very long time to metabolize the feelings I've, huh. I'm having about these interviews. So a major piece of my self-care around interviews is patience, where huh. I will leave an interview and I will feel this very predictable up like surge of imposter feelings and negativity and just real a feeling of really being in the dark about how the interview mm -hmm. went about what I even want for my future and so on. And a major piece of how I navigated the past month was telling myself, this is going to take time. You're not going to know how you feel about this today. You're not going to know how you feel about it tomorrow. And you're not getting very good information from yourself right now. You know, like your feelings are too mixed up. They're too tumultuous for you to be drawing conclusions about whether this place is good for you to live in or whether you feel ready or whatever. All of these, all of these things um, are best addressed from a calm mind. And mm. I had a mind that was just like churning. And so now that I'm finally back um, and done with interviews, I can. I was saying to Sarah before we started the podcast, uh, I feel like kind of a half-baked pie where people are like, well, how did it go? How was this and how was that? And I was like, I could serve you the pie, but you would be like, what is this mess? Like what even is in this? And I would, I mean, I need like another probably week or two to bake so that when people say, mm -hmm. how did it go? What do you think? I can be like, here's how it was. And I would serve you something that looks like recognizable and sensible Instead of just serving you this mush, like, it was blech. Um, it's just how I feel about it. So um, patience, major part of that was patience. That's, yeah, that's interesting. It's, um, I, think, I think that would be exactly my response if I had to do so many interviews back to back. Because I only had one interview, um, and... Oh, you only had one faculty you know, interview I, when you were still a grad student, Sarah. That's, well, wow. but what I'm what I'm saying is because I had this just one, and and I knew that you know I was likely going to take this postdoc fellowship anyway to to be with my husband. You know, I, the pressure for, for me wasn't as high, and and so I felt the same as you in the sense that I felt like I really had to bluff my way through it. I had to project the yes, hologram of Sarah. Yeah. I was I was completely I was projecting this the vision which I, which I have hologram. but yeah. yeah it was definitely the oh I'm going to start this astrobiology program it's going to be awesome right. we're going to do this and this and this and I think it'd be great if we could you know expand the department in this area right. <laughs> whatever I mean it was you know it was ridiculous, <laughs> <It's not> right? ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> but, and oh look at this course I taught and wouldn't that be awesome if we bring it here you know it but was you really did teach it was that course. definitely <laughs> I know but you know I'm just saying you know it was like I sure. felt you know I definitely felt especially when I was talking to the dean of science yeah. you know because he was he was saying yeah I think we you know because it was a physics and astronomy department yes. and he was like oh I think we should have our own astronomy department and, and you can be the start of that and blah 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 yeah. blah and I was like oh my god you know wow, <laughs> anyway, so you know it was just very so did um, you just put on the mask and you're like 
calmly nodding. I put on the mask almost all yeah. the time, right? You know, and, and I felt like, despite putting on the mask, I felt like I could still interpret how it was going nice. fairly well yeah. uh, with reading uh, people's cues, in part because also... I, I don't know, like a lot of them gave me instantaneous feedback, oh, you know, so nice. it was, it was even easier. Yeah. I mean, in the sense that like, you know, I was very lucky in this situation. I mean, I was the only candidate they flew out and in the end, um, they were all very positive, you know, towards me. And, and I remember the, the part that made me feel best about the situation at the end was, um, one, the person who had hosted me said, you know, there were some skeptical people before you came and before you gave your talk and they were the ones who came up to me afterward and said good things about your visit and and that they were convinced and and that made me feel good you know it made me feel like okay I've I have you know projected the professor Sarah and it has fooled them you know well enough for them to have bought into this uh, this this hologram (laughs) but it did feel it did feel like I was um I mean, as in any interview situation, you have to be on the whole time. And, and that is draining no matter how you look at it. And it's, and to have to be uh, in that position where you are, like you said, projecting, you know, Sarah, the, I can make my own course and teach my own course. Sarah, the, I can lead graduate projects, even though I have not advised a graduate students, you know, and look at all these projects that I've thought of, you know, and, oh, we could do this. Sarah, the oh, yeah, this would be what I would propose on, you know, which is interesting. Like, that was some of the questions. Oh, I wish I had that list of the questions they ask here in the UK. Things like, what would be your first NERC proposal yeah. or whatever? It's a UK funding thing. What what would you do, you know, with 5 million Euro, uh, euros or pounds? You know, what would you, what's your, you know, one-year plan, five-year plan, 10-year plan? So these types of questions, you know, you have to kind of think of before. And I hadn't really thought of them, so I was kind of winging it. But I felt like I did a decent job of going through of going through that, and but I realized in the future that you know I would want to even think about that before going into the interview a bit more because I felt like I was able to project the hologram. the The resolution was better <laughs> the later <laughs> into into the interview because the first day it was I was more just here here I am Sarah and and it was interesting because only one professor in the end asked me really directly, you know, would you accept us if we make an offer to you? You know, whereas like everyone else was just kind of also selling and I, you know, I was selling and everyone was in the selling mood, you know, but only one professor really like just like got to the the heart of the matter. And and that was also really difficult. And I, you know, and I answered him honestly that I thought I was still going to take my fellowship. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and it was a good, it was actually a really good conversation because he was the old department head and, and he said, you know, I think that's a good thing. You can use this fellowship to get a new skill set. It solves your two body problem. Yeah. You'll come in with more options in the future. And so, I mean, I think it was, it was a really positive conversation, but it was a really like, oh, this is yeah. honest. And I wasn't, I didn't have the hologram projector on at that moment. And, um, it felt good. On the other hand, as I was telling you before, it was also the, 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 he said something to me that we kind of both disagree with from what we've heard other people say is, um, at the end of that conversation, he said, um, (laughs) you know, if you have to ask if you're ready to become a professor, you're not. And, and this is exactly the opposite from what I've heard of some other, other professors, very well-known professors who, you know, you would be surprised, um, 
you know, how top notch they are. And they said, I didn't feel ready, you know, and, and, and one person, I remember <laughs> G chatting with a colleague of mine and saying, you know, I'm not ready. I'm, I'm objectively not ready. Right. I'm objectively not ready. This is ridiculous. I'm still in grad school or just, you know, just right. finishing. And, and he said, and then we, I was on G chat and he just didn't respond for like 10 minutes. <laughs> and, and then I was like, you're oh, trying to think of what to say God, to let me down so nicely. <laughs> You know, I was like, you're, you're just trying to be nice. I know it. Um, you can just tell me, you should just tell me right. what you think. Oh my gosh, <laughs> you know? And, and, and then, and then they came back and they're like, oh, sorry, I just stepped away. And then that's when they said, they said, no one feels ready. I, I they said, no, everyone doesn't feel ready. You know, and, and that really made me feel a lot better about it because, and then he like named a bunch of professors that he had talked to, you know, who said they didn't feel ready when they were you know, interviewing and when they were starting junior faculty positions. And, and so I guess that would be the one message I would tell people is that even well-known famous faculty didn't feel ready when they started. So if you feel that way, that's, that's fine, you know, and, and you are going to feel like putting on, you know, hologram of yourself and projecting and bluffing. And it's really a fake it till you make it sort of a situation these with these interviews, because you are selling all these aspects of yourself and you can feel like they are the polished version (laughs) of them, which is, which is very stressful because you can then also feel like you're not going to live up to that expectation. And that can lead to imposter thoughts of, well, I'm overselling myself or, or whatnot. I remember thinking at the end that like the whole tenure process just sounds so stressful, (laughs) you know, that you have to, within five years, you have to get grants, advise students, postdocs and teach and, and, doing all of this is just really you have to become a master at juggling a lot of balls at once whereas grad students and as postdocs you're really mainly juggling one ball with a few side yeah. balls as you're starting Learn, to yeah. add in maybe some students and add in maybe a bit of teaching or but you know it's it's like it's just less I feel than than the professor load but maybe yeah maybe we all just rise to the occasion who knows I don't know I think it's very, <laughs> we'll see how I mean, it is the the tunnel you have to pass through to get to professor. I mean, I'm picturing it like being one of those children's toys where you're supposed to put the triangle block in the triangle hole and the square block in the square hole. And if you're shaped slightly wrong, it's really hard to get through. And I felt Mm -hmm. that very acutely. I was like, I am not the shape for this hole where Mm -hmm. I was having a very hard time often seeing my own values reflected in um, the mm. inter- in the interview process, at least, where I would feel like, is there really a place for me here? Like that kind of attitude, for example, where it's like, well, if you're not, if you don't feel ready, then you're not ready. I mean, that just reflects mm-hmm. a real lack of knowledge about the academic experience for many people. And my own mm-hmm. day-to-day lived experience places an extremely high premium on empathy toward others and just like having meaningful interactions with other people. When I go about my day-to-day life, these are the things that give my life meaning. Applying for grants doesn't give my life meaning. And in Mm. comparing myself (laughs) with other people who are on shortlist or when my mentors are trying to give me insight about this, you know, there's often kind of a mercenary quality to it where you are like stripping people down to their few marketable qualities and kind of comparing them. And that feels deeply uncomfortable to me. I don't like it. And so I was often struck with profound feelings of this space is so clearly not made for me. 
I, I, it was almost like a space having an allergic reaction to you where you're just, you feel that, um, it just, you are not meant to be there. You know, it's, it's clearly crafted for a type of person who is already there. And those people reflect a certain set of values. And I didn't see my values reflected often. I found that really challenging. I had to remind myself, um, often that, my values were worthwhile and important. And mm-hmm. that was another major piece of how I kind of coped was just closing my eyes and almost feeling my physical presence, like focusing on that so that I was reminding myself at the end of the day, you're a human being. I mean, what are the things which are most important to human beings? It's not mm-hmm. telescope time. Like I would have to really remind myself mm-hmm. and check in a lot that interactions with people do matter. You know, like in this, in mm-hmm. the conversations you're having today, everyone's kind of acting like it's not very important, but that that's not true. That's not true. And, and academia doesn't have to be that way. But that this was like a whole side conversation yeah. that I was having, like a background process that's nice to, to 10 or something where I was <laughs> thinking, no, my values are important and my style of interacting with the world is valid. Even if I'm not really seeing that rewarded around me or I'm even feeling the friction while I am seeing whether the block that's shaped like Sarah is going to like fit into this faculty shaped hole and I can feel the friction there Mm -hmm. and um it was just a very high uh, emotional cost but what I want to share with people I mean I think if I were listening to this podcast and I were a graduate student or something um I would feel terrified of interviewing Because what we're describing does sound really scary. And what I want to affirm is that at the end of the day, like in so many studies, those like values affirmation studies, what ultimately helped me Mm. navigate it was not reflecting on my ability to win grants or my ability to advise students or my ability to publish. What helped me navigate those situations was reflecting on the things that matter to me and the things I feel are most important to me. And paradoxically, like, did that ever come up in the interview? Of course not. You know, I mean, and it felt so strange, too, to, I kept wanting to talk about things which are so publicly playing out in our field right now, such as, like, mental health crises in academia, generally speaking, sexual Mm -hmm. harassment in our field. And yet I felt like Mm -hmm. there was such a high social cost to even asking what is the, what is the, what are the channels for resolving conflict? in this department. Like I, I felt almost mm-hmm. like asking something like that is making trouble or something like you're not supposed to ask it. Or how does this department deal with conflict when it comes to sexual harassment? I mean, that's such a basic question yeah. and it's so clearly endemic. And yet to ask it felt like I was making myself, um, I was laying myself open to criticism of being too sensitive or something like that. And I thought this is so yeah. strange. Yeah. I, I- yeah, I have, I have two thoughts on that. One is um, with with the last point, are you saying you can't ask certain questions? I remember when I was visiting, of course, they were very open about kind of their maternity leave policies. That's a great, women, that's a great point. You know, asking about maternity like, leave, yeah. Te- um, turning back the tenure clock, stuff like that. But it was interesting because I think I also asked, I said, you know, what are other reasons that sometimes the tenure clock wow. gets turned back? Do they consider medical right. medical leave, for example? And, and the, the professor I was talking to, it was only one professor, he was like, oh, yeah, um, medical leave doesn't stop your tenure clock here. And, and, I, and, I, and maybe that's not true. I would be surprised if that's 
true because most universities, yeah. you know, if you get cancer or something, you, you, ha- you there's probably yeah. an avenue for it. But it was very interesting because I, I, that would have been one that I would like to find yeah. out more about, but I felt like I couldn't, couldn't ask because I was like, oh, we don't, we don't, no one right. gets sick that here or whatever. I don't know, you know, <laughs> it's like you can, you can get pregnant, but you can't get to sick, even you know? get pregnant. That's like and, a idea. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's very, so that was kind of, I felt awkward about that one. Um, and then I, I think I mentioned to you when I, there was like a woman's lunch and I had, you know, met with the, some of the faculty and just in general in my meetings with, with people, I felt like there was just less, it was, uh, bias, uh, gender bias and racial bias in academia was just less on their awareness there. It was almost, you know, some of the, one of the, uh, people even said they appreciate it because then people go after them less, like less aggressively or something. It was very weird. The whole dynamic about, yeah, it was like like appreciating benevolent sexism. And, and, and that was, and that was also just so shocking to me because it was, you know, there's only one or two faculty who was yeah. really like on it. Whereas in the places I've been before, especially at Harvard, everyone's talking about gender yeah. bias now, it feels like. And, and there's just, there's been this increasing awareness of sexual harassment in the field and gender bias and racial bias. And, and we have a lot of professors doing really great things, um, advocating for this and making yeah. the awareness known. And I felt, I felt like maybe the situation is different in some departments. It's the same. When I came to the UK, one of the professors sat down with me and said, we're not anywhere close to where the U.S. is on talking about gender bias. And, and, you know, and that's interesting. I haven't fully been here long enough to maybe comment on that personally, but that was their experience after having been in the UK for, as an American for so long. And so it's, it, different places will have different levels yeah. of awareness about these social, social issues. The other thing I wanted to uh, go back to that you said that I think is really important from another aspect is knowing your priorities. So you were saying how reflecting on your values is really helpful in the interview process. I think it's also helpful in making a good decision because ultimately your values need to also align with what you choose, like what you, the candidate, chooses in terms of accepting an offer in terms of where you want to live, in terms of are you, do you want to go down this this path? And for me, um, having the imposter syndrome, it's always a fight to to go beyond my imposter thoughts because I often try to say, oh, but my values are that I'm not good enough to 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 like deal with all the the stress and I won't succeed. Therefore, I should self select myself out. So it kind of gets. Sometimes I feel like my imposter thoughts try to yeah. push my values in a way that. Um, I don't want them to. So I try to have to recognize what are my true Sarah values for what I want to do with my life in the future and and what job I want to have. And I try to also not limit myself from any opportunities. So, you know, even if I'm not 100% sure where I'm going to end up in the future, don't close the door prematurely. Yeah. Apply for the positions and, and go and interview and, and look at your options because ultimately yeah, you can have the imposter in the back of your mind saying you can't do it and, and oh, wouldn't it be nice if you instead just did this path or something. But I think it's good to still go for the opportunities that you see. But then to also, when you have the opportunity in front of you, really reflect on, is this my value? Um, and, and like, Sarah, you applied only, you know, you didn't apply to some jobs, for example, because they didn't reflect with your values of where you want to live in the future and and I also have location as a priority in, in my life as well. So like yeah. these 
these types of values are important in ultimately reflecting on what to do in the end with yeah, what job it. and that you, you might it, get. Yeah. My, my mentor once said, you don't need a plan, you need priorities. And I, I think that comes up <laughs> here. You know, we don't necessarily know exactly where we're going to end up, but if you know what's yeah. important to you in life, that's a good guiding star. I want to remark on one other thing, which is my own pattern of in particular, it's not even necessarily imposter thoughts. Like the way that I respond to situations in which I'm being tested in this way, like with interviews, it brings up not only imposter thoughts, but a bunch of just gendered trash where I'll be very critical of my appearance. Now that this is my third go-round on the faculty merry-go-round. I'm starting to recognize the scenery. Like every time I go around, I'm like, oh, this is familiar <laughs> where I'll be very critical about my appearance, for example, um, in the period of time when I'm uh, interviewing or applying for jobs. And there's relief from that almost right after it's over or if it's it's decided. Like I really remember last year looking at myself in the mirror after I had made a decision about what to do and thinking that I actually didn't mind how my face looked. But for, a, but for a few months, okay. I was like, ugh, which was just very, uh, which is a very gendered thing to do, to, to be preoccupied yeah. with one's appearance or with one's body and its perceived flaws or whatever. I mean, and all of this stuff was coming up. And mm-hmm. I, I wonder if it wasn't my attempt to seize like some kind of control in a situation in which I have mm-hmm. so little. There's no place in which I can exert any control except to try to change myself. And that comes yeah. up for better or for worse. I can be really cruel to myself and I am uh, more critical about myself in terms of my relationship status. And I think that's reflected in a study that I read that showing that, I mean, this exact period of time where the most women depart from the pipeline is, in, in, once you enter the pipeline, I suppose, is intermediate between postdoc and junior faculty. And this is exactly yeah. when these kinds of significant weights are applied most heavily on young women's psyches related to their whether they want to be partnered and whether they want to be parents. And so this particular study was just showing that these feelings like really reach a fever pitch, anxiety about whether you want to be married or want to be partnered or whether you want to be a parent. They're reaching a fever pitch like right at this period of time. And that's really reflected in the fact that wanting to be a parent is a really good predictor of whether or not you'll drop out of the field if you're a woman. Or the fact that women without children are three times likelier to be tenured than women with children or men, whether regardless yeah. of their parent status. So I felt like that, that was all of the piece. That kind of makes sense then, my response being one where I was feeling my own personal values getting really tested and just my, my identity in terms of how I look, uh, in terms of my relationships with others, romantic and non-romantic, all of that stuff, I was feeling like intense anxiety around it. And I think that makes a lot of sense because in particular with, with women at this period of time, it's a real meat grinder. And so this particular study, which we'll link to, showed that after your mid-30s, a lot of that anxiety is gone. You know, people are women yeah. who are studied, who are included in this study, had significantly diminished anxiety about their choices. They felt actually very much at peace with their choices and so on. And so I feel like that makes sense then for me to enter into this process, which is all about transition and about like major commitments in the future and feeling 
really shaken up, really shaken up and really uncomfortable about it. And it's something I feel like never gets talked about in interviews. You know, like when people are mentoring you about interviews or whatever, I mean, half the time it's like, well, if you feel scared, you're not ready. It's like, scared is only the first thing I'm feeling. This list is a long list. I'm feeling like 10 kind of adjectives about this. And I'm not even supposed to feel the first one. You know, give me a break. Give me a break. I'm feeling so many ways. And that's also, but that's also toxic, yeah. right? Like, again, it's kind of the same comment of if you don't feel ready, you're not ready. That's, it's it's not, just true. not true. Yeah. I mean, most people feel scared. And I'm sure if they were to objectively look back at their interview experience, they had some anxiety about it as well. And it's always easy to look back on things with rose colored yeah. glasses, you know, and to see the history as, as being like, oh, yeah. And I just got faculty and then, you know, and then I got tenure and, and here I am. And <laughs> now, yeah, now it was all great. I would do it again. And, and you forget like all the, the difficulties along the way. It's the same with grad school. Like when you look back at grad school you know, to me, it looks easier than it was when I was yeah. in the tunnel looking the other way. Like, looking back yeah. through the tunnel is is a lot clearer than trying to see out of Well, maybe if you had known then and, what would happen, ultimately, that you would finish, that you would feel really yeah. proud, that you would get this great fellowship, that it would all work out in terms of two-body problem right out. I mean, at least this in this major move, like, maybe at the yeah. time you would have felt relief. But you couldn't have known. I mean, we we all were like, you known, right? It could have all it could have all ended horribly, Sarah. It could have all ended horribly. Next time, next time, you can't know, and it's it's definitely a problem with um, yeah, with not. With, I think the imposter syndrome feeds on that. Like I said, most of my imposter syndrome relies on the fact that this is the height of my. Oh, my career it's like peaked I peaked already I it's, it's a common imposter right I peaked already it's all downhill from now and I I have this imposter thought all the time <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> the, the peak is just moving along you know and it's like it's like there's there's it's objectively now it's going to be on the downhill well, whereas before I, I can see where it worked <laughs> yeah it's objective <laughs> you know and and yeah I, I guess it's it's just yeah, you have to, I guess my encouragement to others is to not let the imposter thought limit your opportunities. And that for me is really hard. And it's a constant, aggressive fight against myself in that regard, because given, you know, no other pushback, it would limit what I do. Oh, Sarah, this was a good one. Um, I feel like it was on the heavier side, almost felt like therapy a little bit. (laughs) Um, But that was part of why I wanted to do it right afterward, because I really wanted to share some of the stuff that felt really immediate uh, and really pressing mm-hmm. post-interview. I think that also explains why I've been really lagging on the podcast front uh, <laughs> in terms of generating new content, et cetera, et cetera. It was, it was hard, hard enough. No, it's fine. You, we, yeah, you needed the, the, the time off and to to just settle with everything that was going on. I know you're going to get a great offer. I know it. I already know it in my heart of oh, hearts. Oh, that's good. That must, that must be um, nice for you. No, I do. <laughs> I do. I know it. Our podcast came up, Sarah. Our podcast came up. There was more than one time where a faculty member had heard of the really? podcast and had even listened to a few episodes. And Uh-oh. one <laughs> professor, one physics professor, it was all positive, one physics professor uh, on an interview told me, I think you should keep doing this because I was listening and you sound so much like me when I was a postdoc. And now I feel like I've really made progress on a lot 
of those things that scared me so much. So I think if you keep going, even incrementally, over the next five years, you'll look back on your first episodes and, and think, like, wow, that's nuts how you were feeling such so many imposter thoughts and so frequently. And I can't, I mean, that makes me feel really, it made me feel some excitement because I was thinking about you and I was like, oh, I can just imagine, like, if and when Sarah's in some great faculty job and we'll look back and be like, well. Well, you're going to get there first. <laughs> you you're going to get there first. Then. You're going to get there first. You're going to have an awesome offer. Then, but now look where you are. <laughs> You're going to get an awesome <laughs> offer this year, I'm sure. Uh-huh. But, but right, also, so. yeah, I think <laughs> I do think it's possible that the imposter syndrome gets better with time because I was thinking back on Amy Cuddy's TED Talk where she talks yeah. about the imposter syndrome and how, you know, finally now she's a professor and, and all the stuff she said. I remember feeling that way. It was really strong. And she even cried about it, you know, teared up in her TED Talk. That, and then yeah. she said, but I don't feel that way anymore. And I feel like it does take getting through pretty much into your stride of being a professor before that really starts to die down, which is hard because first you have to get comfortable with getting through undergrad, then being comfortable with grad school, and then being comfortable as a postdoc, and then being comfortable yes. as a junior faculty, and then actually getting tenure. And then once you're there, then then maybe it can start being like, this is life. Now I'm Now I'm settled in yeah. a place. And 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 that's kind of a long haul to be feeling the imposter syndrome the whole time. I know. And even still, know. you know, you do see uh, in talking to professors who are tenured, even they still have imposter thoughts too as well. So it's not like it's necessarily home free from there. But, you know, I do hope that in five years or so we'll look back and be like, oh, look at those silly thoughts. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, I'll be, and I'll be making fun of you for thinking that you wouldn't end up in such and such a place and you'll be making fun of me and and it'll be the same pattern except we'll look back on this period of time with like a sense of real gentleness toward ourselves I think because that was how this professor was talking to me like with a gentleness in her voice where she was like I think you should keep doing this you'll see how much progress you've made um and so that was another reason why I wanted to kind of catch it fresh all the feelings because I want to remember in a few years how Mm. this felt and I want to be the type of faculty member if and when someone's visiting my department to visit that I will be really supportive you know I mean just in terms of why don't we take a break and we'll make you a cup of tea or do you need 10 minutes when people would do things like that it was like (laughs) the clouds parted and a ray of sunshine (laughs) came down from heaven when someone would indicate in any way that they knew that this was challenging and that you should just keep at it and that was, I mean, or even if you weird. have a chance as, as a future uh, committee member to maybe see what you can do about the scheduling being a little less intense, like where you can build in, yeah, build in little cow. breaks or or breaks. opportunities, or maybe yeah. not start as early, or I I don't know, you know, just like I know there's a lot of factors in there, and they do yes. have to just get through so many interviews, yeah, uh, and with people, but it I feel like there's probably also things that you can do to make the schedule more friendly which would be to any of our professor listeners out there our 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 advice (laughs) (laughs) for both now and in the future um but yeah no I think I think that's good and I I know you're gonna get something I know you're gonna be an excellent person who's gonna do that when you have interviewees in your office I have no doubt I have no doubt you're biased Sarah (laughs) well anyway (laughs) That's so sweet of you. That's a nice note to end on. Um, 
And uh, so if you're interested in finding out more about our podcast, we're online. We have a Twitter. And we are Dr. Sarah Care, plural, D- Drs. D-R-S-M-S-A-R-A-H, Care. And we'll start <laughs> tweeting again now that, <laughs> now that life is resuming some semblance of normalcy. And we have a website at Dr. Sarah Care, same handle, dot Tumblr, T-U-M-B-L-R. Dot com and you can reach us at Dr. Sarah Care at Gmail and you could even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 617 Sarah 50 617 S-A-R-A-H 50 and Love we to hear would from you. be interested in yeah. answering answering yes any messages on a on an upcoming episode so holler at us uh, if you're interested in that and and with that let's sign off I'm Sarah B I'm Sarah R. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us.